Let's pray together once again, and, and we'll continue that prayer we were just singing. Lord, how thankful we are that you have given promises from ancient times that are as true and alive on this day for us as they have ever been for generations preceding us. We are thankful that the great gospel promise that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved is as true and alive today as it has ever been. We are thankful that the promise of the Spirit to those who follow Jesus is alive and real for us in this day, and oh, how much we need you, Spirit of God. Would you forgive us for the ways that we have quenched you? We have sinned rebelliously. We have sinned carelessly. We are ignorant of your character and your work, and because of that ignorance, often fail to go where you lead and to do the things that you desire for us. But we bow before you on this day and ask that you would not only forgive us and cleanse us from all of our sin, but that you would strengthen us and then empower us Empower us in the same way that you empowered those disciples post-resurrection who believed the promises of Christ, who waited patiently, who devoted themselves to prayer, and then as you were poured out in their souls, they became a mighty force of gospel truth. Lord, this nation and the nations of the earth need the power of the Spirit poured out in salvation in conviction of sin, in faith and understanding that would lead them to call upon the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. Some even here today need to do that. And I pray, Spirit of God, that you would show the same mercy that you showed long ago and bring a deep conviction of sin, but with it bring a deeper conviction that Jesus is powerful to save, that his life of perfect obedience is the life and only life of righteousness that will give us eternal life. That his death on the cross is the only sacrifice that can remove our sins fully. And that his miraculous resurrection is the eternal signal that Jesus Christ alone is Savior of the world. Oh, Spirit of God, come and summon all of us into this faith and into that service that you have created us for. Do all your holy will in this place today. Bless not only here, but bless in the thousands upon thousands of churches scattered around the world where the gospel is preached. Some are preaching in the midst of great catastrophe and chaos in places like Ukraine. Bless our brothers and sisters. Empower them to believe and rest in the promises, though so much about their lives has been forever altered. May they see that their security is in you and that the eternal treasures and inheritance that you have promised have not been taken away, though many of them have lost all earthly possession. We ask for those who preach the gospel faithfully in our own neighborhood, for sister churches scattered up and down this valley 
Would you bless them on this day, Lord, that as they open the word together, the faith of the saints would be strengthened and those who are not yet a part of your family would be brought to repentance and belief. We are thankful that you have shown us the riches of your kindness. We've praised you in song. We've lifted our hearts in prayer and now we submit our hearts to your word and pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen. Open your Bibles once again to the book of Acts. Last week, Pastor Larkin took us to chapter 1, where we considered the words of Christ as he gave them to that little band of disciples. Forty days after the resurrection, he stood with them before his ascension and kind of summarized everything he had been teaching, even post-resurrection, and said to them, as we were reminded last week, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And out of that promise, that little group began to wait patiently. And in the remaining verses of chapter 1, you find that they were gathering in a particular setting and apparently devoting themselves to prayer. Now, Luke will say that at the end of chapter 2. We won't get all the way to that point. Um, But in verse 14 of chapter 1 and the last verse of chapter 2, he makes a big point about this little group devoting themselves to prayer. And out of that simple act of faith, chapter 2 kind of explodes before us. Now before we read a portion of chapter 2, I actually want to take you back from our vantage point, probably at least 4,500 if not 5,000 years, to another moment that the scriptures record for us that I think is significant. I'm a big picture kind of guy. And I think it's important for us to keep God's big picture in view when we come to the scriptures. Back in Genesis 11, there's a fascinating story that unfolds as the peoples of the earth at that particular time say on a a particular day, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us, listen to this, make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now, what's quite interesting about this is this is post-flood, so Noah and his family have, you know, disembarked from the ark and and have begun to uh, multiply again, and so their families are growing, and there are tribes and even nations, if you will, that are beginning to appear on the face of the earth, but they're all speaking the same language at this point, as you would expect, and on this particular moment, decide that they want to build not just a city, but in the, at the center of it, a tower that reaches to the heavens. And the key thought in that verse, Genesis eleven four, is the purpose that, that they reveal. It's not to make a name for the God who gave them life and gives them breath each day. It's not to establish a temple of worship for his honor and his glory. No, they, they have a building program in mind that will make a name or a reputation, leave a legacy, if you will, for themselves. And God has other ideas. And as you go on through Genesis 11, you come to verse 8, where the Lord 
as it's recorded, disperses them from that particular location over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name, the name of that city is called Babel, and we even use that word today about people who just babbled on. It's just saying stuff we don't even care about or understand. Well, that's the origin of it. Now, here's the reason, Genesis eleven nine, 9, because the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and a second thought, from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Well, that confusion, that difficulty in communication, and the scattering of people is still a problem to this day. You want to know where a lot of the ethnic strife comes from? It's rooted in this moment. You want to know where your frustration comes from as you travel to foreign countries or even sometimes, you know, you you can travel in the confines of the U.S. and depending on the the dialect of English that's spoken there or the accent, some of you are like, I can't understand what these people are saying. Well, this is what it's rooted in. Now, it was actually an act of grace because if God had left those people together, they, they would have solidified this rebellion who knows where civilization would have been. So as bad as it is, it's not as bad as it might have been. Today it's estimated by the World Christian Encyclopedia that there are over 12,000 ethno-linguistic peoples within the nations of the world. It also lists 13,511 languages and over 30,000 dialects. It's funny what we do to overcome the language barrier. You ever traveled to a foreign nation where they didn't speak your native tongue? And sometimes we turn up the volume alone. Hey, can you tell me where to buy gas? Gas. Like, like suddenly the higher volume will, oh, you know, I'm a native French speaker, but now suddenly I understand English because you turned up the volume. Or we slow it down. We speak you know, longer words and vowel sounds and all of that. I mean, we're crazy. But frustration and, and a need to communicate will cause you to do that, won't it? God has a different idea. And 2,000 years ago, he began to do something that is making a difference to this day, and it will culminate in a spectacular moment. We don't have time to cover that today, but in Acts 2, I want you to follow along as I begin reading a portion of this chapter When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. It filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on them, each one of them. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes, Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Galatia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own language the mighty works of God. 
And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. And yes, I do think that's a touch of humor. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, he's quoting Psalm 16, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up and of that we all are witnesses. Being therefore exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Is that not magnificent? No wonder Jesus said, Wait. For the promised spirit. 
Those kind of results never come from the efforts of our own strength and wisdom, from our own flesh. Something like this could only be credited to the presence of the living God being poured out in the lives of ordinary people like us. Now go back to verse one because I want you to notice that the Spirit arrives in the promised power. And you have to tie this back to chapter one. We already uh, alluded to verses eight and nine, but also verses four and five where Jesus has said to them, the promise of the Father is going to come and that's the Spirit. But now we read that there's a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And oh, what that must have, what, what that must have stirred in their hearts. And then they see what appear to be something like tongues of fire rested on each one of them, Luke records. It does seem to be the fulfillment of John the Baptist's prophecy that he had given many years before that Messiah would baptize his people with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And it says very simply, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues. The question is, who's filled? Well, all of them. The 120, apparently. And, and here's a little point of identity that I think we need to just pause on and consider uh, the impact even on our own setting, our own lives at this particular moment in history. Did you notice in verse 7 that they're identified as Galileans? Now, Luke doesn't make a big deal about this because the readers of his, uh, of his uh, book here, the Acts of the Apostles, would have filled in some blanks, but we need to pause because it's not as apparent to us. We don't live in, and work and build our lives in the same kind of context, but the Galileans, according to church historians, had a reputation for being uncultured. We might refer to them as the rednecks of their day. I grew up in the South, and some of you have even said to me when I've talked about that, well, you don't sound like you're from the South, and I'm always tempted to press you a little bit and say, well, what is what is that sound that I should, you know, be like emitting? But we all kind of know, don't we? Now, there are different southern accents, and depending on which accent that uh, you grew up with or would employ, your IQ level will be measured and marked by people who hear you. It's pitiful. Uh, it's actually unfair and a little bit bigoted of you who judge we Southerners for the, for the way we talk. If I can talk like that, mostly my parents being from the Midwest, it's not like what I grew up with every single day, but it was around me. I own the South, happily so. Don't pick on my people for the way they sound. But what this is reminding us of, and, and this is a little point of ironic humor to me too, that apparently even the tongue speaking of these people you know, had a, a tinge of Galilean accent where the people hearing them are like, these are the Galileans, the uncultured, the uneducated, people we would never expect to be manifesting the power of the living God. But at this moment they are according to the promise of the living Christ. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. Now this sets the stage for what we'll See later in the book of Acts, if you keep reading, the Holy Spirit is poured out on Samaritans. No Jew would have ever fathomed that scenario. Then later on in chapter 10, it's poured out on Gentiles. No Jews or Samaritans would have ever thought that Gentiles would receive this gift that comes from the Father by the promise of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit himself 
But that's exactly what's gonna happen in this book. And, and here's the point we, or here's the reason we pause on this. It's crystal clear throughout the Gospels, throughout the Word of God, that Jesus has always planned to use the ordinary people. He's always planned to take people that the the world would never look at and say, well, there's a really gifted, talented, influential, powerful person. Of course God would use them. No, he chooses people that most of us in, in ordinary society would never expect to be used. He does not withhold his spirit from you because you don't have enough degrees or because you haven't traveled nationally enough to to receive experiences that would educate you and inform you. And some of you today fear that your lack of education or cross-cultural travels and experience or even the family history you're coming out of, even your accent might disqualify you. Afraid to open your mouth lest someone else would think that you're an uneducated, illiterate, you know, nobody. But the Lord himself is not looking at you in that way. The biblical narrative tells a different story than what your personal narrative says. The Apostle Paul, in writing to the Corinthians, reminds them of their calling. And he says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God actually chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing, things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Yeah, if he has a place for Galileans to serve him with their uncultured, different accent, you think there's room for you, for me? The Spirit gives power to ordinary people. Now let's press on from here. Go to verse five and note with me that the Spirit gives power though specifically to witness. He empowers these people to proclaim Christ to all people. Devout men from every nation is how Luke describes him. And they've come for Pentecost. I mean, that's the annual feast that comes 50 days after Passover. It's a very important feast in the life and history of the Jewish people. But in this book, as we read through verses 9, 10, and 11, there are no less than 15 different nations and regions that Luke mentions having gathered for Pentecost. It's a big deal. So there are Jewish pilgrims who have returned to Jerusalem for this feast, and then they're the residents of Jerusalem itself, a vast crowd from many, many different places. Now, the whole reason I I took you back to Genesis 11 was to give you a little bit of context that God might be doing more than just capitalizing on a moment when a lot of people are packed into one place. I think what he's about to do here is showing he is reversing the powerful work of mercy that he did thousands of years before this when he scattered the the people and he confused their communication. Isn't it interesting that they're all coming back to one place and he himself is overcoming the language barrier? Why are these disciples filled with the Spirit? Well, verse 6 tells us Um, And verse 8 and verse 11 give us the answer for that. First of all, verse 6 says, each one was hearing him speak in his own language. Verse 8, they say straight up, we hear each of us in his own native 
language. And verse 11 tells us that it's not just about showing that God has the ability to do something miraculous to overcome a communication barrier. No, here's the real purpose. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Whose reputation is at the forefront? A powerful group of people who have some some vision to build a massive city with a spectacular tower in the middle of it that reaches to the heavens? No, it's God who is at the forefront, whose works and reputation, and in particular, whose plan of salvation needs to be proclaimed. Now, the response of the devout men, verse 12, is one of great curiosity. What does this mean? And as an aside, verse 13 notes, some are mocking what's going on. It's always the case. The scriptures never shy away from the fact that there are those who will, who will never have an interest in receiving the gospel when it is shared. But we should not be discouraged by that because there are always those whose curiosity just peaked in a different way. And so what's Peter's answer? Look at verse 16. He says this was what Joel, the prophet, foretold long ago. Now that, that's probably 550 years before this event, maybe even closer to 600. So you've got the Tower of Babel event, 24, 2500 years before this at minimum, could be even more than that. You've got an ancient prophecy. You've got the promise that they received about 10 days before when Jesus stood with them before his ascension into heaven. So you have, you have promises of God that have been given across the millennia converging in one particular moment. And so Peter says, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. These devout Jews who've come from every nation under heaven would have been familiar with the prophecy of Joel. Committed, they're, they're committed Jews. That's why they've come back to Jerusalem for Pentecost. But verse 21 is Peter's specific explanation where he gets to the heart of the good news or the gospel as we call it. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's what it's really all about. And the arrival of the Spirit and the speaking in tongues is not about a bizarre experience that ought to be replicated from city to city or from town to town like, you know, the good old Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus. This is not a sideshow. This is the fulfillment of the word of God. The great teacher and preacher of our time, commentator D.A. Carson, this is actually out of his book, uh, Showing the Spirit, uh, where he really digs into 1 Corinthians, but he, he touches on this particular episode in the book of Acts and gives us some really helpful perspective, and he just says it so eloquently that I, you know, rather than try to put it in my own words, it's just easier to quote Carson. And if you don't know who D.A. Carson is, you should be familiar with him. He should be your friend, even if it's just the printed version uh, of Carson's uh, work. So he refers to this prophecy of Joel that appears here in Acts and reminds us that what was anticipated was an entirely new age, a new relationship between God and his people, a new covenant. You see, historically, if I can interject this again, God had made a covenant with Israel. And there were a few others who benefited from that, people like Rahab or Ruth. I mean, there were some of the area Canaanites and Moabites who by faith found their way into the covenant, but it was primarily for Israel. But now God is pushing those walls over, so to speak, and he's gonna include the nations of the earth. So that's some of what Carson is referring to. 
what was anticipated was an entirely new age, a new covenant, and experientially this turns on the gift of the Spirit. Put more generically, what the prophets foresaw, prophets like Joel, was what some have labeled the prophetic spirit. All who live under this new covenant enjoy the gift of this prophetic spirit. And this is no mere creedal datum, but a a lived, transforming, and he uses the word charismatic in the biblical sense, not denominationally. He's talking about the grace gifts. We encountered that in Romans 12 where Paul said, you've all been given a gift of the Spirit. You could say you've all been given a charismata. Now use it. That was Romans 12. That's how Carson is using it. A living, transforming, charismatic, New Testament sense of that word identified here. And vital experience. A vital experience, a personal experience. It is in that sense that all who live under the new covenant are prophets, They enjoy this endowment of the Spirit with various rich and humbling manifestations distributed among them. And Peter's at the forefront of this. All these believers are full of the Spirit. And and again, I'm gonna throw out another little uh, important point. The the prophesying that they're doing is not prophesying to, to reveal the hidden secrets of the future. Sometimes that is a form of prophecy, but the prophesying that's going on here is specific to the revealing of the message of who Jesus is and what he has done. And to that end, every single one of you who are followers of Jesus have been filled with the Spirit and are being empowered by him to prophesy, to foretell, to tell it out, the message of who Jesus is, of what he has done, the significance of his life and death and resurrection. Because that's what Peter and the others are doing, and that's ultimately what their tongues are about. It's not some magical language that suddenly spills out. No, it's actually the languages of all those various nations and people groups who've gathered there. It's it's quite a remarkable moment. So Peter goes on to explain specifically the way of salvation. Now look at verse 22 and following. Because the Spirit empowers ordinary people to be Christ's witness. Ordinary people. We already touched on that with Galileans, but I also want you to think in terms of ordinary people who have, who have all kinds of character weaknesses and flaws. Think about where Peter was about 50 days before, 51 if we try to be real exact. Remember the bragging and boasting that he did with Jesus in the final hours? Though they all forsake you, the other 11, I will go with you to the death. Oh, Jesus, aren't you glad to have me on your team? And Jesus in great love and wisdom says to him, Peter, before the rooster crows, signaling the dawn of a new day, you will deny me three times. And it's not just that Peter denied him in the court, you know, as Annas and Caiaphas, you know, set up this Jewish court and he's intimidated by the powerful religious rulers. It's not that Peter, you know, shrank under the the withering inquisition of Pilate or Herod. No, you read the gospel accounts and where is he while Jesus is being tried? He's out in the courtyard, he's nearby, but the first accusation brought against him is by a servant girl. Hey, you're one of them. No, no, I don't know the man. And then apparently a little later, somebody else says, no, no, you're, you're, you're one of the Galileans. And maybe he was ashamed at not only being identified with Jesus, but 
you know, like being told, hey, you're, you're kind of one of those country rednecks. No. And the third time, he actually swears an oath. I mean, basically says, may God Almighty damn me if I know Jesus. Seven weeks prior to this moment, that's where Peter was in his own power. But when Jesus, in grace, pours out the Spirit and the Holy Spirit fills this man, he's not simply bold in the presence of a servant girl or a couple of other people huddled around a fire to keep warm on a particular night. No, he stands in an assembly of thousands. And as verse 14 records, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem hear these words. You see, he's not preaching out of his own ambition. He's not preaching out of his own strength or knowledge or understanding of Jesus. He is proclaiming out of the power of the Spirit what he has witnessed and seen. And he says in verse 32, we are witnesses. Now, a witness is simply someone who sees an event and reports it. And Peter and the others were eyewitnesses, yes, of the crucified, resurrected, ascended Christ. But if that's what being a witness for Christ means, then you and I are excluded. Because I, I didn't see any of these events, and neither have you. And I'm not even going to stand on a, a dream or some kind of vision and say, well, I had some you know, spectacular extraterrestrial moment. No, but that's not what being a witness is about. And I think we get a sense of what we are testifying to in how his message unfolds. Look at verse 22. I'm just gonna touch on a couple of key things. As he rolls through this particular message, he reminds them of Christ's authority. And it's not the mighty works and wonders and signs that Peter and the disciples have done, but it's the mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through Jesus in their midst. He reminds him in verse 23 of his death and says it was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. There are eternally divine purposes at work here. That's what we're bearing witness to. And then he goes even beyond that to say, and you're culpable for it. Look at verse 24. God raised him up. Loosing the pains of death. It was not possible for him to be held by it. Verse 25 through 32 speaks of Christ's unique divinity. He's not just a being that God had some kind of blessing to be poured out upon, but he is the living God. And then verses 33 through 35, he speaks of his exaltation. Now granted, he had seen those things personally, but his witness is to the reality of all that God is and all that God did, and that's something that every one of us can not only believe for ourselves, but bear witness to personally. And then he summarizes it in verse 36 by speaking of the lordship of Christ and calls them to believe it. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. That's a strong word, isn't it? That's a word that's gonna get Peter into trouble before very long. But here's a man who has, who has had all of himself, so to speak, expelled. I mean, you, we love Peter. We all love Peter, don't we? Because we see ourselves in him. And, and some of us who don't see 
certain attributes in ourselves, love what we see in him. I mean, we love that, that he is a little bit impetuous. We love that he seems to be like first to jump in. We love the story that he was the only guy that got out of the boat and actually walked on water. I mean, we, we either relate to him because we are like him or we wish we were like him. But do you see how Jesus is not trying to use the natural Peter to accomplish the gospel mission? He wants a Peter who has truly been humbled and emptied of self, but now filled with the Spirit. And that's the Peter who shows up 51 days after the most tragic moment in his life. And my friends, this is the same kind of work that God would do in you if you would get rid of self and repent of it and turn your back on it and say, oh Lord God, I I really am nothing, but would you fill me and use me? The Spirit gives power to the ordinary person because that's the eternal purpose of Jesus Christ. That's the kind of witness that he wants. Look at verse 37. This is also really good news. The Spirit is at work in the hearer's He's not just empowering his witnesses according to promise, but in a sense you could say he's empowering people to believe. Verse 37 says they hear Peter and this message and they were cut to the heart. Well, the question is what cut them? Well, the little phrase appears when they heard this, when they heard the gospel. The word of God, as the spirit of God wields it, is alive and powerful. Hebrews 4 tells us that it is living and active. The word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's another reason to just invite people to read the word. Read the word. Read the word. Want to read the word with me? Great. Let's do that. Hey, you should read the Bible on your own. There, I'm, I'm seeing some of you sprinkled throughout the assembly this morning who started reading the word on your own and the very thing that Hebrews 4 talks about is what you experience and after reading the word, you believe. It wasn't even because somebody came to you and said, here's the gospel story and laid it all out and said, this is who Jesus is and this is what he did and this is what your sin means and the gift of eternal life. You just started reading the word and you were cut to the heart. Well, the Spirit's the one who's doing the cutting with the Word, and it's not to destroy a person, but it's actually to give them life. Luke records in verse 39, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Those are the ones that are being saved. So there's a work of God, of of summoning. And then verse 41 says, there were added to that day 3,000 souls. Who's doing the really hard work here? The Spirit. As we proclaim the gospel personally submitted to the Spirit, the Spirit of God is the one who not only empowers that witness but convinces people that the promise of forgiveness is for them, that the call of God is personal to them. There may be some of you here this morning who are hearing and sensing the summons of God. As you've listened to this story unfold, you you have to admit before God, I'm not actually a true follower. I'm like those people that Peter was preaching to. I've heard about the Christ who died and rose again, who ascended. I mean, I've heard bits and pieces of this, but I've never thought about what bearing God's truth has on me this morning. And my friend, if you are Hearing in your soul, in your spirit, the summons of God, come to me, repent of your sins, put your faith in Jesus Christ, do it, answer his call. 
It's a kind call. It's a loving call. It's a gracious call. He's not summoning you to himself that he could turn around and crush you in some way. He's actually summoning you to his heart that you might be free from your sin, free from the fear and doubt that, that just racks your conscience in, in those quiet, alone moments. He, he wants to liberate you and set you on the path of eternal life just like he was doing in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. Do you hear him calling you to repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ? Do you hear him calling you, as Peter said here, save yourself from this crooked generation? Oh man, what a crooked culture we're a part of. Washington's not gonna save you. United Nations aren't gonna save you. No local leader that you might be looking to or powerful executive, they don't have power to save you. You and I are as crooked as any of them, but in Christ, he not only straightens out those issues of character, but he, he gives us eternal life. It's a remarkable story. And it's not given to us that we would tell it, kind of like the Christian set of fairy tales. Hey, kids, before you go to sleep tonight, I want to read you an amazing story. Once upon a time, a guy named Peter. No, it's given for us to understand the power of the risen Christ when he calls us into being his witnesses and the promise in particular of the power of the Spirit to go do the thing that he's commanded. And many of us have great fears and concerns and, and we think of some of the barriers that stand in our way today uh, with regard to fulfilling the commission and command of God and, and some of those primary barriers have to do with issues of communication, from everything from, well, I don't know what to say, to I'm afraid to open my mouth, or like, I'm just not a gifted communicator. So we, have, we feel there are barriers of communication, and then don't we also feel there are barriers, barriers of, of cultural, ethnicity uh, concerns? Well, I'm just not, I'm not from there, or you know, I grew up in a different setting. And, and here is a spectacular example of how God really does plan to use ordinary people and by his power move his people over every one of those barriers to reach the people that from before the foundation of the world he said these are my people. Last week we were privileged to hear Daniel and Christy Mulder share their vision of going to Southeast Asia to start churches. They laid out a 25 year plan. Some of you like I sat there and thought first of all I can never learn a foreign language. Don't underestimate the power of God. He could just give you the gift of prophetic tongues as he did here next too. The ordinary means he seems to have been using for many years is that people surrender their, their, their lives to Jesus and he moves them into a place and then he actually empowers them to learn a language and sometimes it is through hard works, blood, sweat, and tears. But I have too many friends who have heard God's call, answered it, gone to nations, learned languages, when if you looked at their you know, school transcripts, I mean, they barely passed the required foreign language classes. But it's spectacular to see how the power of God at work of them moves them right into a new culture, a new language. It's not a barrier. In our equip hour, we're gonna watch the first half of a really powerful story um, uh, of a missionary couple that we know personally, uh, and Will Galkin alluded to him two weeks ago, David Hasafluk. 
and I'll tell you a little bit more about his story, but as grand as it is, you need to know he, he actually was just an ordinary guy when God said, I want you to move to a place that you might never have imagined. The Holy Spirit has power to, under, to overcome whatever communication barrier you might be worried about. And then the barriers of culture, he does it. And this story is a reminder that though God had to once scatter the people because their, their hearts were full of pride and seeking to make a name for themselves, he has begun uh, to move to bring the nations back together. But it's not in some United Nations, one world government kind of thing. It's ultimately in Christ that he wants to unite Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave and free. He's making a new people, but he's doing it by the presence of the Spirit and the power of the gospel. And only the Holy Spirit in this particular way can bring people of all kinds together. About 5,000 years ago, in an act of mercy, God confused the language of the people and scattered them far and wide. About 2,000 years ago, he began a work of the Spirit through the proclamation of the gospel through ordinary people that not only bridged the language and communication barrier, but began to unite people in a common bond and mission. It's a movement of redemption and salvation. Yes, it has social implications. Yes, there are even some economic implications. But it's a movement of the spirit that leads people from every tribe and tongue and family and nation to repent and believe in Jesus Christ for salvation. Turn to Revelation 7. This is just one of several passages in the last book of the Bible that give us a glimpse of what it will look like. Many of us say, but it just doesn't seem like the Lord's work is moving forward with great success today. The news reports don't, don't encourage our hearts. It seems like the world is more and more divided, and in some respects it may be. But this is where I want you to see again the unchangeable, unfailing purpose of God. This is not just prophecy of what will be. This is an indicator that the prophetic message of the gospel will ultimately prevail. In Revelation 7 verse 9, John records, after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. In a moment, we're gonna go back to the song we opened our service with and with even more reason to sing it in faith and hope and confident expectation. It's a passage like this that reminds us that Jesus really will reign wherever the sun runs its successive journey. That a day is coming when his kingdom will spread from shore to shore. And the beautiful line, till moons shall wax and wane no more. I thought of that last night as I was out and the little crescent moon hung over the ochre mountains thinking here we are going about to begin another lunar cycle. But one day that cycle will come to an end and not because we have overheated planet Earth. Sorry, sidebar. You know, when I was a kid, they were prophesying a new ice age was coming. I remember as a child being panicked. Like the South, which, you know, we get it 
little snowfall, but we were, we were gonna be just buried under sheets of ice. So sorry to those of you who are all whacked out, you know, like frantic. Global climate change. The only bad climate change that's coming is when Jesus, who created it all, says, uh, it's time to pour out wrath. It's another conversation. It's all gonna stand until he says no more. But part of the no more moment will be when he says the nations have come to me. They've heard the good news. They've received the gospel and they've believed. Now what's our part? Just two thoughts in conclusion. First of all, we need to be people who are submitted to the spirit. That, that isn't, doesn't that, doesn't chapter two put in perspective why Paul says in other places, walk in the spirit. Keep in step with the spirit. Don't quench the spirit. We need to be people who are submitted to the spirit. And then I do think we need to pray for more of the spirit. Our tendency is to rely on our knowledge, our experience, our education. We rely on a thousand things. But until the spirit is the one who is not just in charge but empowering the movement, I I think we'll probably see small things. So I'm asking you in these closing moments to join me in praying for the Spirit of God to fill us afresh. Just fill us afresh. Lord Jesus, your your promises are great because you are great. And our hearts thrill to read the record of 3,000 people being converted in just one day. I don't know of anyone here at this moment who has been a part of a movement like this, but we long to be. Our own state is in desperate need of its own Pentecost. Forgive us for our pride, our sin, our indifference to the Spirit. Forgive us for quenching your work in our midst, dear Spirit. Would you reveal to us anything within us that hinders your work? Why you would even let one small, insignificant person quench anything you do? We don't fully understand, but we are asking for your mercy. And then we are praying that in this place, in this assembly, you would pour yourself out in fresh supply. Empower us so that as we open our mouths on Christ's behalf, we would not only speak truth, but the the proclamation itself would be empowered by the Spirit and we would see his work convicting of sin convincing people that Jesus really is the Christ who lived and died and rose again, that there is salvation in no other God or individual or even religious path outside of Jesus. Do that convincing, saving work here this morning. Do it in our neighborhoods in the week to come. Stir our hearts by your promises And move us under your power that our beloved neighborhoods, that our friends, that our family who at this moment are not in your household would be brought. And as we pray these things, we are mindful that you purposed long ago and and we plead that we would have the joy of seeing passages like Revelation 7 fulfilled in our day. So soften the hard hearts Open those neighborhoods and nations that have long been closed to the gospel. Turn this crooked generation 
to Christ that he may be honored that our joy might be full. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.